Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I am Oliver Purcell. I'm the founding host of the podcast. I've been working on films and videos and things for over 10 years. I've made over a dozen shorts and features, either as a producer or a director. And I am just finishing up my first feature as a writer-director called The Alternate. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer-director-producer uh, with two features under my belt. I'm also a former film critic and a current distribution consultant who used to manage the creative distribution initiative at Sundance. Uh, this week, we have a pretty awesome interview with director Jen McGowan. You may know Jen from her first feature, Kelly and Cal, or her second feature, Rust Creek, uh, which is trending on Netflix for a bit. She also created Film Powered, which was then evolved into Glass Ceiling. And um, she's brilliant and has all the answers ever. Right, Ulrich? Just She just has all of them. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, she has a lot of answers. She was really fun to talk to. And it was another person I probably could have talked to for another hour easy and never gotten bored or you know lacked things to talk about. Um, but yeah, I'm really curious to see what people think of uh, this conversation. Jen is like a magnet, like her confidence, because like in indie film, it's crazy to meet someone who's confident. And um, I am just like so attracted to like anything she has to say. I just want to like follow her into the desert. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, after the interview, stick around for a short film uh, called Mirror Sight by Carl Richter. And um, I think we're also going to be sharing some YouTube comments and possibly even a Patreon patron. So you take us out. You take us out, Auric. You do the thing. Without any more of our preamble, here's our conversation with Jen. We are here with Jen McGowan, director of Rust Creek. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thanks for having me. So let's get right into our first five questions. Uh, give us the elevator pitch for Rust Creek. Oh, uh, yeah, great. Uh, so Rust Creek is a story of a young woman in college who gets a job interview over Thanksgiving holiday and has to drive from rural Kentucky to uh, Washington, D.C. through Appalachia. And shit goes down. So that's it. That's it. Nice. How many days did you shoot? 22 over 25 days. We had lots of weather issues. Wait, 22 over 25 days? So you only had yeah. three days off the whole time? No, 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 no. What I mean oh. is some of those days were half days. Oh, so, okay. okay. Because we would get a tornado or a thunderstorm oh, or I something see. like that. Weather in Kentucky is very erratic and unpredictable. Hmm. And if you can say, uh, what was the rough budget of the show? Under a million. How long did you spend working on the film from you being brought on to the film's release? So I pitched on it. It was a director for hire production. So I, I pitched on it in... Um, August, early August, and we shot between Thanksgiving and Christmas that same year. And then um, the release was how far off from the that original meeting? <sighs> you know, it's so hard for me to remember, but I think it was like a year later. Um, yeah. And then, and then the release, of course, with these ridiculous you know, hybrid releases ends up taking a year itself. You know, you have your small theatrical which comes out with your highest, most expensive pay for pay-per-view. I mean, basically that's what they do. They, they distribute based on where they can make the most money to where they make the least money, you know? So that starts out with theatrical, 
um, individual pay-per-view, then you go down to, I guess, uh, maybe, I don't even know when the DVDs come into it anymore, um, but it could be like a cable deal, um, which is more like a subscription situation. And then last at the very end is Netflix. I saw when you were trending. We could talk about that later. We are talking about that later. It's so funny because everybody's like, when it comes out on Netflix, everybody's like, oh my God, finally your movie's out. I'm like, it's actually been out for a year and it was in theaters <laughs> twice, but... <laughs> It's okay. <laughs> um, how big was your crew on the film? Oh, goodness. Uh, I mean, regular crew size, like probably like 35 or something. So, you know, indie film crew size. Compared to all the projects you've been uh, a part of, how difficult was this one? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, they're all difficult for different reasons and challenging in different ways. But I, I don't think I would use the word difficult, really, because I really like, I love those situations. You know, I, I mean, you get pushed to your limits sometimes. But for the most part, that's what's enjoyable about filmmaking is problem solving. Um, so, or at least for me. Um, so I can tell you that the challenges specific to this production were weather, very much so. Um, we had, you know, we had snow, we had rain, we had, like I said, a tornado, like every weather that you can imagine we had. Um, and uh, the same thing that happens with every uh, indie film, or really any film, is not enough resources to accomplish the thing you want to accomplish. Um, so... That's why you have to have your priorities straight. Can we go back in time? I want to go back in time to Kelly and Cal because I've become new yeah. friends with Amy Starbin. And oh, so I just want to, yeah. <laughs> um, I Amy hear Starbin about, is the writer of Kelly and Cal. Yes. Thank you. Thank oh. you for providing context uh, <laughs> and new fan of hers. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you got your first feature off the ground? Yeah. So that, it's so funny. Everything that I get, I can trace it back. Every single project, I can trace it back years to where the momentum for it started. Um, nothing ever just kind of comes out of the blue. For Kelly and Cal, um, there, were, there were two like converging momentums. One was um, I went to USC, Amy went to USC and just by luck and luck comes into it a lot. Um, there was a program that um, three alumni put on called USC First Team. Um, Barbara Stepanski and Cam Miller were two of the women who organized it. And um, what they did was they created a lab for USC alumni. And their goal was to instigate feature films amongst the alumni. Um, so they put out a call to all the alumni looking for 30 directors, 30 writers, and 30 producers. I happened to see that call. I applied and I got accepted as a director. And, and the structure was that um, you, you know, each person had to pair up in some fashion. So they had this massive speed dating event and you had two weeks to determine what the script was, who the director was and who the producer was. Oh God. And that was your project. And that would allow you to proceed to the next level. And basically all they did was they set deadlines. Uh, they didn't get involved creatively and they didn't get involved financially and they didn't take any credit. And, and it was over a course of a year. Um, and every time, if you met the deadline, you could continue. If you didn't met the meet the deadline, you were basically out. And it started with 30. And I think from that eight or 10 features got produced. Um, so, which is incredible odds. And unfortunately they only did it for two years because USC didn't support it, which yeah, was. Yeah. Cause they um, did not have that when I was there 
or yeah, at least if I they it was, did, it was, I wasn't invited. <laughs> I think it's really stupid. I'm hoping to kind of um, add that to Glass Elevator at some point. But in any case, um, uh, that's where I met Amy. She had, um, I always get this wrong. I always say two views, two views uh, pages, and then I get a text from her that's actually, um, so we'll say it was like two thirds of the script. Um, and I, I really liked it and I liked the voice and I liked her and I liked what she wanted to do with it. And I was like, let's work on that. So she and I, and a producer committed to one another, went through the project. Um, the producer ended up not working out, um, which is fine, but, um, that was after we, we got our whole, whole thing done, which was a finished script, a treatment, a budget. And then we took that out. And when we lost our producer, I said, I'll, I'll figure it out. I will find producers. I didn't know anybody, but I said I would do it and I do what I say. So, you know, I just started calling everybody I knew that was tangentially close to the type of producer I needed. Um, I will say before I did that, we tested the script with a lot of people. We knew it was a good project. Um, we knew it was, it was, it was an opportunity for a producer. It wasn't an ask. Um, so, and at the same time, this is the other momentum that was happening. I had a short film called touch that was on the festival circuit that did incredibly well. It is still screening like 15 years later. Um, and, uh, I still get residual checks for it sometimes <laughs> and, um, small, uh, anyhow. So I, you know, I tried and tried and tried. I think I reached out to, ended up, you know, through word of mouth, reaching out to 30 producers that I pitched to. And every time somebody would say no, I would say, okay, do you know anybody who might be looking for this? And I'd say half of the time they put me in touch with somebody else. Cause like I said, it was a good project. Um, then magically out of the blue, I got a call from Mandy Tagger and Adias Roney at Spring Pictures, and that's their company in New York at the time. Um, they've moved on from that. But they said, you know, we heard about your film on the festival circuit. We heard it's doing really well. We're looking for an up and coming female director. Do you have anything you want to direct? And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. This is bullshit. <laughs> And I'm like, all right, sure, you know? Um, and I said, yeah, I've got, you know, I've got this film I'm trying to put together and had a bunch of other stuff, but I was like, this is the one that I think is closest to shoot. They're like, great, send it over. I sent it, um, I think a week later, they flew me to New York. We did a deal and later that year we were shooting. Amazing. But like the thing that people usually hear in that is the luck. But what's important is there was also the previous film that got the attention and the hard work of preparing that project when we had no guarantee of it being seen by anyone. Um, so yeah, that's the story. So did that company, Spring Pictures, did they just come in and, and fund the whole thing? Or was it like they started like the process to help you find your funding or how did that all work? So. Uh, fortunately, they did some other films before. So, um, you know, producers build their Rolodex just like, you know, directors or writers or anybody, and they build their financial um, contacts. So they had private equity um, contacts that they would go back to regularly for their films. It doesn't mean they all, you know, every single one says yes, but it was very fortunately um, a fairly process. I also want to go back to what you said about 
testing the script, I think some people may want to know what exactly is the process for that. We talked to Sev Ohanian, who like micro tests his script. Like he asked, like, oh, really? did you notice that red hat in scene four? Like it's like <laughs> he, it like focus groups. Uh, oh, so he does groups. the as, as equivalent of like a screening test with yes, the script. Yes, on a script. That's interesting. But you're talking about just getting it out there and getting coverage or what exactly do you mean by that? Um, so what I mean by that is starting with people who don't matter, but whose opinions you trust and working up to people who do matter uh, for the project. So I will start with, it's funny. I never tell my husband what I'm working on. He doesn't usually know until I'm, I, I'm like, let's go to the screening. Um, so uh, I don't test on him, but I do test on one of my friends who is not in the industry, but I just like her taste and I value her opinion. And I know that she can't tank my career if she hates my script and <laughs> she'll tell me. Um, so I start with her um, and then I branch out from there. Um, you know, I might get to the point where I will test it with a producer, but not the correct producer for that project. Um, and that's the other thing, like the biggest thing about this business and why it takes so long is you have to be hyper-specific. You never need a producer, you need the right producer. You never need a script. You need the right script. You never need a talent. You need the right talent. It takes a long time to build those relationships to have access to those people. Um, and you never know which people are the right people until you're working on the project. So you basically have to know 10 times the amount of people you need to achieve the thing so that hopefully you have one of the right people for everything to achieve the thing, you know? <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Take some time. So was Kelly and Cal your first feature? Yeah, it was. And and what had you done before that? Like, had you done a bunch of, you had that short film Touch, but was there other shorts before that? Or was that Touch your first short or? Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, my the re anything I would show people would be my, my thesis film from USC, um, which was a teen comedy called Confessions of a Late Bloomer. Then I did... Um, I did some short form content, like commercially stuff, but I, I, it doesn't really apply. Um, then I did touch. So pretty much that. Wow. Amazing. I, I mean, I did a bunch of films at film school. I went to USC, you know, and so, but that's not stuff I would show people. And I worked, you know, I studied, I studied uh, acting at NYU. So these things were being built up over a long time. It's not like, oh, I, I did a short one day and then I got a feature. So talk to us about like what happened after Kelly and Cal came, like was made and done, like and how the distribution worked out for that film. So we premiered at South By, which was amazing. We won an award there called the Game Changer Award, which was very important. Uh, it, it doesn't matter at all, but it helps distinguish you. Um, and it's something that you can say forever and ever, amen. So awards are important, unfortunately. Um, so we won that. Uh, we also got um, picked up at the festival um, from IFC, um, which is great. And then they did a day and date release. Um, we opened, I, I don't remember how many theaters. It was a very small number. Um, and uh, I think you go to iTunes first at that time. And, and, you know, it was a great release. It did really well. Everybody's really happy. Got great critical reviews. Um, but Ju people love Julia Lewis's performance in it, which was very important to me. And um, Johnny Weston's, which was especially important to me because he was kind of new. 
Um, and then nothing happened. I had to make another feature. Wait, define nothing happened. So like no, no agents, no managers, no anything like that. You just like had this movie came out and then it was like cr- crickets around the world or? Yep. Yeah, wow. I didn't get my reps until after my second feature came out, not existed, came out. Wow. So this is a really important question for me personally, because I'm working on my first feature and I'm expecting Great. the same thing to happen to me without yeah. South, You should South expect, by, yeah, expect nothing, <laughs> expect nothing. And you will right. be a lot happier. So the question is like, what do you do at that stage? Like, how do you get your next film going when you, you hear crickets after you've put your heart and your soul out into the world? Well, first of all, you recover. I mean, you've given a lot, you're tired. You need to... <laughs> Your cat is in the background. That's so fun. Um, you need to refresh. And like, I mean, after I make a movie, I am so spent. I, I have nothing left to give. I need to rest. So you do that. And then you get over the fact that you didn't get what you wanted. And you try again. And unfortunately, the second film is sometimes harder to make than the first. It's certainly harder to get attention on. Uh, Rust Creek got into no major festivals. I remember you posting about that on Twitter. Like that's one of my favorite tweets of yours. Yeah, thank you. And and, uh, I, you know, I've screened at Tribeca. I've screened at South By. And the problem is festivals need to sell tickets, right? So that's why a first-time filmmaker is much more attractive than a second-time filmmaker. I'm not a discovery anymore. But is that what you attribute? I mean... Uh, okay, so you let's go back. You said you didn't get representation until after the second feature, and we're right. recognizing um, a, a weird lack of momentum after the first feature, which I think is ridiculous. But I'm just acknowledging it. Do you yeah. attribute that to anything? Like, were you like, oh, it must be because of this? It's because it's a drama. Mm, look, like, what? Here's the know? thing: I have no idea, and I will never know for sure. Maybe people just didn't like me. Who knows? Um, I think, I think I was about a year too early with that film. Nobody was talking about women directors at all. The next year was like, everybody was looking for women directors. And, and you know, that that's okay. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not bitter about that. That's, I'm just saying that because that's the only thing I can kind of figure. Um, or maybe the film wasn't good enough. I, I think it was great. You know, all objective feedback is that it was at least, you know, decent. Um, Maybe it wasn't good enough. I mean, it got to South by, I mean, like, what else do you need at that point? I guess it's hard when you get the distribution deal. It's like selling tickets, that's a different thing, I guess. I don't know. Here's the thing, and I hope your listeners take this to heart, that everybody that gets into festivals, Tribeca, Toronto, South by, Sundance, nothing comes of it for most of them. Actually, Liz, you would probably know that, you know, cause you've been so involved in it. No, I don't mean from your experience. No, I no, mean- no, 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 <laughs> I know that, but that is true. No, I mean, because you know about the festivals very well. Well, no, I do think that, you know, we, we had Amber Seeley on the show um, yeah. like several months ago and we talked a little bit about labs and fellowships and mm-hmm. she said, you know, uh, to a degree that they're meaningless, but the aggregation of all yes. of them means something. So I think that if you play Sundance, it means something, but it may not be uh, the phones are a ring in for you. you not know, at that moment. After exception. Yeah. No, and that's really hard for people to understand that like, wait, I can't even get into Sundance and Sundance is only meant to be one of the things like what? 
that's unfortunately it. And, you know, I think about this a lot and I, I, I know, um, you know, like I, I, well, you know, Emily Best and I adore her and she always talks about like coming from a place of abundance and I, I embrace that from my personal perspective, but I also know that in our industry, there's, there are limits, there are limits and not everybody, you know, there's only one director hired for every, every film. Um, and I think that in order to break in, I think there's a really good reason why they call it breaking in. It's because you have to disrupt something. You have to disrupt something either with your work or with who you are, meaning an A-list talent. Something has to be disrupted to bump someone else out of the position give it to you. Because we, we hear this term break in all over and over again, but most people we talk to don't even think they've broken in. But from my vantage point, they yeah. have. So it's like no one ever actually maybe breaking in is just like a fallacy. Maybe there is no breaking in because no one is in. There's no in. No, I think there is. The question is staying in is a whole different issue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's why I, I, I really don't begrudge people, you know, who come from industry families or wealth on how they get in because staying in is a whole different issue. Building a career that you love is entirely a different issue. So going, going back to Russ Creek then, like, you know, you're in this position where you feel like you have to start over and get your next feature made. Like, what do you do? Like, did you go back to the same producers from the first one and say, hey, let's make another movie? Like, do you have to find all new producers? Like, what, what are you doing? No, I mean, so I don't write. So that's something that I think is really relevant to this discussion and my career. So I've always reached out to writers and built re relationships with writers and, and sought writers out um, to, to essentially develop material for myself to direct. So that's what I did. I just kept doing that. Um, and there was a great project I loved called Millie to the Moon, had a great producer attached, went through film independent fast track program. Couldn't get that one made. Um, but actually that one led me to a meeting with the producer of Russ Creek. That's how I met him because I was Stu. looking for finance. Uh, yeah, I was looking for finance for Millie to the Moon. And he didn't respond to that script, but he was like, you want to read something else? Mm. So again, it's like the combination of luck, a lot of hard work because I had to produce a whole other, you know, project, pa package a whole other project before I could get that meeting with him. I do want to talk about the writing thing because it's something that, I, I don't know, maybe it's just from my vantage point. I always feel like yeah. as a female director, I always have to write my own content. And that that's kind of become a, almost a presumption of the female director is that they mm -hmm. are a writer director. And I don't know why, but- I completely reject that. I, I well, strongly good. reject please, that. Please and reject it. it. <laughs> and in it, I yeah, I really do. And I think um, I've had this conversation with a lot of executives that I feel that sometimes what happens in the indie film world is that what women directors get awarded and praised for is not what the larger industry wants. We get rewarded in, in the indie world for personal, small, emotional. Yes. <laughs> Who the fuck wants that? I mean, it, you know, it, yes, you want to see it for an indie film, but it, you think Paramount's looking for that? You're right. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe, but that's not what I see. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so do, do you feel like that since you are a director and not a writer director, do you feel like that puts you at a disadvantage in any way? Or do you feel like having to find your collaborators, it actually gives you more opportunities because you're like looking for things? Yeah. How many scripts can you write at a time? I can work on three or four. <laughs>
<laughs> that was another reason I came to that, which was time. You know, I looked at my life and I was like, I don't have time to write. I'm a director. I want to direct. The fastest route is not through writing for me. And, and also, you... oh, there's a lot of writers who are a lot better than me. I'd rather write, uh, direct their material. That's what I've come to lately. <laughs> it's like, I am not yeah. good enough. Um, not and having it's representation. It's really yeah. painful. I love it, but it's painful. Uh, I hate it. <laughs> so previous to now, when you didn't have representation, were yeah. you just scanning you know, press releases for lab announcements or how were you finding the best writers? Are we just asking your network or what, yeah. what was the process? Yeah, just yeah. meet people constantly. I mean, you know me, Liz, I, I, I would be at, I think this is the first year because of COVID that I didn't go out three or four nights a week to some industry events or or one-on-one -on -one drinks or, or dinner, you know? Um, my, this is my whole life. This is my whole life. This is my whole life. This is my husband's whole life. Like everything in our lives is organized by this singular goal, everything. And it has been for 20 years, it has been. When we look at an apartment, you know, do we wanna have money for this apartment or do we wanna have a little extra money for film festival entrances? We go with the cheaper apartment. Do I really need no jeans? No, because I need to travel to Cannes to meet some people or whatever that <laughs> I am telling you, we that is how we have lived our life for the last 20 years. And honestly, now that we don't really have to as much, it's really hard to get out of the habit. Like, let's talk about finally getting representation and like how that came about specifically. And then what, what has that changed in your process since that's happened? That's interesting. Okay. So again, tracing things back to the momentum that started years ago. Um, one of the women who was on the jury for the Game Changer Award, I kept in touch with. Um, we she actually, we tried to get a project made together that she was producing. Didn't happen, fine. I saw in the trades that she got hired at uh, a management company that was great. And I wrote her an email, I congratulated her. I said, this is awesome, by the way, if anybody there or you are looking for talent, I'm unwrapped. And they called me in and it was a great meeting and they love my work. Um, so I signed with Echo Lake um, and I, I love the people there. Um, and then after that, um, Adam Perry at APA um, kind of hunted me down. He had seen Russ Creek and he was amazing. He was so persistent. Um, and, you know, from like never having any response before to someone like banging on your door is an amazing feeling. And what happens is this is the best way I can describe it. There is a there is a physical shift in the wind at your chest turning into the wind at your back. And it's amazing. Um, now, it's not. It's not, um, it's not a free ticket once you get representation. I think people really misunderstand that. First of all, they don't know who the fuck you are. You have to work your ass off and prove that you're not a crazy person that they can send to meetings and, and you know, spend <laughs> their relationships on. Seriously, you know? So in the beginning, you're going on generals, they're getting feedback from every single one. And what they're learning is, can I put her in a room with more important people. 
that's one of the things they're learning. That's, that's not the only just, thing. I just want to say that sounds really scary. Just I want to put it out there. You don't seem scared. Really? That sounds very, just the idea of judgment, the constant judgment sounds very scary. Oh, no. No? I mean, no, I have a really <laughs> good time. I go in, I just like have a laugh and, you know, I, it seems to work. So, you know, look, all you, all you need to do is just connect with people and have a conversation so that they want to know, first of all, by the time you get to that point, they have seen your work. They like your work, right? They don't call you in if they don't like your work. So you're going in on friendly footing. Um, all they want to know then is, do I like this person? Can I spend time with them? And secondly, what do they want to do? And do I have any projects that align with that? Like they're, people really are looking for you. So your job is to find those matches. So it's very important that you do your prep before a meeting and learn what is the network doing? What are they trying to do? What are they wanting to do? Um, you know, find out as much as you can about the person that you're meeting with. So they, oh, oh, we went to school with so-and-so together, you know, whatever, so that you can connect with people. It's really good advice. Is that where the TV directing gigs came from or did those come yes. from? Okay. Yeah. And I have to say this kind of pisses me off because it took me so long to get into television because television is so closed. And it's real. It's really done. The, the hiring is really done through the agencies exclusively. I found it much easier, far easier to direct movies than television. Fortunately, I got to kind of jump in at a, a really high level. You know, my first episode was The Purge. My second episode was Twilight Zone. So, and, and thank God I got both of those before COVID because I really think I would have had to start over if I didn't. And, you know, now I'm doing something else that I can't tell you about, but it's really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Got so many questions. Um, I wanted to go back to something that you said uh, earlier about the the wind shifting from being at your chest, like push you back to being at your back, pushing you forward. Can yeah. you describe like, like some examples of, of that? Like, like a practical example, like, does this mean like people setting meetings up for you, like to, you know, in the project that you're trying to, you know, get together, or is it just, you know, these generals, like talk here's what happens, that. you know, once you're in somebody's room, they assume you belong there. So you're coming from a place of, I don't know, equal, you know, your, your colleagues, you're not asking for anything. Um, you're looking to find a way to match um, because they value you and you value them. Uh, so the, the, the question of, now you always have to prove yourself over and over and over again. So I'm not saying it's like, you know, you're in, but the question of, is this, who is this person? Is this person legitimate? All of that stuff is, is removed. Um, if, if you're doing even better, you have people who are seeking you out, you know, um, th those are like the, 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 you know, the Alma Harrell's and Mariel Heller's like, the, you know, so that's like a whole other kind of situation. And, and those women are getting called and they're saying, what do you want to make? What do you want to make? <laughs> like a lovely question. I just want to hear that in my future. Uh, okay. Let's, yeah, I agree. All right. We have like 30,000 questions and every answer is like amazing. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, this is, don't apologize for being interesting. Fantastic. Um, 
let's go back to what you said about how this is your whole life. We yeah. talk to a lot of filmmakers about leading sustainable careers, which is obviously insanely difficult. And it sounds like your partner is also in the industry. Is yeah. are you so you're making your living on storytelling? Only when I started doing television. And I think, you know, I, I think the biggest thing that uh burns women out in this industry is a lack of awareness of what the life is. Um, and that really bums me out. So it, if you are coming from if a place where you don't have connections, like you're not an industry family or, or something like that, and you don't, don't have money to the point where like, you know, you, can t- you, you don't have to have a day job. Those situations are different. If you're in a situation where you don't have those two things, um, I don't know how else to do it, but making it your obsession. I don't. Um, and, uh, you know, you miss weddings, you miss funerals, you miss a whole bunch of, bunch of stuff because that's your priority. I, I don't regret that either, by the way. No. I, yes, I wish I went to those things, but I don't regret my choices at all. I, I have had an incredible journey and I'm having an incredible life and I, you know, I'm lucky as shit. And prior to the TV gigs, were you building up? Did you have a side hustle or were you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Until after Rusk Creek, actually. And I'll tell you, um, and I, I talk about this stuff very honestly, because I just think it's important for people to understand. So I worked as a production supervisor, which is the equivalent of a line producer in features um, in commercials, very big budget commercials for years. Um, I did that before I went to USC. I did that after I went to USC. I did that before both of my features and after both of my features. And I've never been more poor than when I did a feature. Um, so, I mean, we, my husband and I would joke that these like accolades would come at the same time as low balance alerts would come. We're like, you know, it's okay. Um, and then, uh, when I started making television, you make really fucking good money. And I'm convinced that that is why they don't want to let us in. They're good jobs. People are going to hold on to these with their brittle, cold, dead fingernails. Okay, so on that note, let's talk a little bit about the TV directing world because we've heard it from a few different people and I've heard it on other podcasts too, but it sounds like it's very structured and that um, it's like a very specific thing. It's not like directing a feature. It's not like directing anything else. It's like very, very honed in. Um, So now that you're in that world, like. Like, what, what does it mean? Are you like constantly pitching to get on other shows? Like, are you just getting offered okay. things? Like, how Here's does this work? Here's one of the other awesome things about television. It goes fast. It goes really fast. You can make a lot of stuff, but also there's no pitching. You interview. That's it. You don't have to spend a month doing a pitch deck and like a, a sizzle. You go in, you have a nice chat. You're hired. It's amazing. <laughs> 60 grand in your bank. Oh, oh my God, stop it. You're killing me. Sorry. Right now. Just saying wonderful things out loud. Uh, and then the experience on set, are you, do you feel like you're just, you know, uh, pushing buttons and saying things that are expected? Are you, no, you are you look, actually here's helping? the thing like, uh, and this goes back to what we were talking about when I was saying about what indie film sets up, especially women directors, to expect. Um, because I don't write, 
I, I, I get so much joy out of directing a script. I don't need to pee on a script. Like it's done. If it's working, I don't care if it's not my script, you know, like, so, so television directing in a way just gives me that over and over and over again. And to me, what's really cool is the puzzle of, okay, how do I make it good within this language? That's exciting and fun. It's not feature directing, but it is really fun and cool. I so think. do you, so do you think like this is something that you want to, you're going to be focusing on kind of going forward is just jumping from show to show to show, or do you feel like indie okay, features so are. When I first started going out on pitches for not pitches, but meetings for television, right. A, a lot of the executives would say, you know, cause all of a sudden once somebody thinks you're cool, then somebody else thinks you're cool. So, so all of a sudden people thought I was cool and they were like, are you, I'm surprised you want to do episodic. And I was like, I didn't actually know what they meant. And I asked my reps and they're like, yeah, they're, they're saying that they see you as like a filmmaker and filmmakers don't usually want to do episodic. I'm like, what? I still didn't get it. What they meant was not pilots or not miniseries. What they mean is, you know, the episodes that somebody else has already made all the creative decisions on, the big creative decisions on. And I was like, oh, so I've lucked out though, because all of the work that I have done in television so far has been, um, it's, oh shit, what is the word? It's not um, continuous, you know? Right, so yeah. yeah. So I get to have a lot of more influence and uh, input than I would on a, a purely episodic show, like something that's been running for years and years. Um, that said, I, I, that makes me a little spoiled too. So, you know, we, we're all, we've already started putting me up for, for pilots and I had my first pilot um, meeting uh, a month ago. Um, so, you know, cause there's more to do there. It's more creative. It's more fun. But just to follow up on Ulrich's question, do you think, um, where's the future for film? Is it going and doing indie features at the same time? Is it not going to back to the indie feature world and really focusing on studio content? I don't want to do any films. I mean, th to me, I, I never wanted to do indie films, but that's what was available to me. That, that was the route that I could figure out. Um, you know, I want to do big movies. I like big toys. I like blowing shit up. You don't get to do that in indie films. Um, so now not to say I don't want to also do independent film, like, but to me, I want a budget. I want, I don't want to have to struggle just to get the beats of the script on the, on into film. Like that's not fun. Um, I don't want to have to worry about is the film going to have distribution or not? That sucks. You know, so, um, you know, so we said like, okay, you know, lowest budget, $5 million, preferably with a, a known producer, preferably with distribution already um, established. And that's what we're finding. I, I have more questions. Ulrich looks like he's stunned. Uh, please, <laughs> Ulrich, do you want to jump in or should I, I have, I'm ready. I mean, it is amazing and I love it, but please keep in mind, I made no money for 20 years. So, you know. <laughs> That's why I always think like, okay, well, we're making a shit ton of money now, but if you average it out, I might not have made minimum wage in 20 years. <laughs> I just want to talk a little bit about your advocacy work for women in, in storytelling with Glass Elevator slash Film Powered, you know, the evolution of Film yeah, Powered and, yeah. and uh, 
you know, how much of your day is devoted to it and, uh, and why do you keep doing it and, and anything you want to speak to in terms of those platforms? Yeah. I mean, uh, so <laughs> there's a lot of questions in there. So first I'll tell people what it is. Um, Glass Elevator, it's a community of professional vetted women in the industry for all across the, the jobs. So there's PAs, there's executives, lawyers, uh, distribution people. Um, it's international. And what it is, is uh, it's a skill sharing site, basically. It's peer-to-peer classes, social events, and job postings um, <clears throat> for women. And the reason I started it was because, um, you know, I realized that when I was a UPM or a, a production supervisor, I forget we call it that in commercials for the union, this is silly. Um, I had only ever worked, I had never worked with a female first AD, sound recordist, DP, um, grip or electric in, 15 years. I'd only ever worked with three female directors and two of them were like one-offs. And one of them was Peggy Serrata, who is amazing. You know, she's like the cream of the crop. So, you you know, and that that's what it's always like, okay, well, it's great when the best woman gets in, but can we have some average women get in, please? <laughs> you know? Um, so, and, and the other thing I noticed was like, you need to know people in person. You have to. Every single thing that I have achieved, I can trace back to somebody that I knew in person. And the reason is when you meet someone in person, you get a feel for them. When you interact with people in real life, you learn. Do they show up on time? Do I like their sense of humor? You know, do they smell? I don't know. But like, these are things that you learn about people. And that's how you build your network and your community. And I, I, I believe very much in networking and building community sideways. And if something happens from the top down, that's luck, but it's not likely. So why spend your energy there? And for me, it's very important that women are telling stories. I don't even have to like the stories. I don't care. I need them telling stories for two reasons. Well, three reasons really. One is our world is shit and it is shit because we look at everything from a white hetero cis male perspective and that has broken everything. Number two, I want to not look like an alien every time I go into a pitch. I want people to get comfortable with women being different, not, you know, you know, we don't, we don't have a Woody Allen and a, and a Michael Bay, you know, we don't have that variety. And we should, because they exist. Wait, that's only that's two. That's my soapbox. That's, I thought there was a third. <laughs> oh, I, forgot. I, forgot. I forgot. I got distracted. I got distracted. You the called cat. me out. I forgot. I forget what the, the third reason is. Yeah. But oh, okay, you know what it is? Honestly, I, I need I need women to last. I need women to last. And I feel that there are so many programs for new filmmakers. I don't understand why we funnel all these filmmakers into an industry that doesn't want them. I need them to last. That means I need you to be able to pay your bills. I need you to have friends in the industry so you're not fucking lonely. I need these things to happen. So, so here's a question, Jen. Um, it sounds like from what, what we're hearing, it's like indie film is like the, the stepping stone to get to the paid work that you actually for can for you. But, 
but I mean, is there a world where like indie film can be sustainable and you can like make a living doing that? Or do you feel like that that's just like a pipe dream and that, you know, something needs to change in order for us to actually continue to make these. I can only tell you what I have experienced. I do not know a single filmmaker that makes their living solely off of independent film producers, directors, or writers. And if they tell you that they're probably lying. (laughs) It's because no one's making money from their films. I mean, it's like you look at that uh, producer sustainability survey that Rebecca Green did. Producers are suffering and they're the people who are usually the rights holders for the films. I mean, it it varies, Um, but that's supposed to be a reflection of how how broken our system is. Yeah. When you see a big uh, story and deadline or, Hollywood Reporter, so-and-so's film got picked up. Doesn't mean any money was exchanged. Right. So I guess what I'm trying to, to, I want to end the conversation with, if there's like some sort of bright, cheery sort of thing where it's like, well, you know, for- I don't find any of these things to be negative, by the way. Well, it's just like for indie filmmaker, like, okay, so for hearing from my perspective, it's like, okay, so, you know, like I, I made my, my first feature, I'm probably gonna have to make a second one, but like, what, what am I looking for in the future? It's like, okay, to break into television. And then once I'm in television to maybe break into something else, but it's like, you know, it feels like what I really would want to hear is like, is there a way to just continue this, sustain this life of like making feature to feature to feature or, or pro- whatever it is, project, project to project. Of course. It, it doesn't, Here's from what thing. we've. <laughs> you have to be very specific about what you want. Right. If you are happy where you live, who you're with, your current life, your current job, and you love making a movie with your buddies once every five years, why would you waste your time trying to get into television? Right. It makes no sense. If you hate traveling and you need to be near your family, why would you try to get into independent feature filmmaking or or feature filmmaking for that matter? I will be away from my husband for six months this year. You need to be very specific. You know, maybe that means, okay, I'm happy making a film with my buddies in the backyard. You're still a filmmaker. You're still a filmmaker. (laughs) Well, there seems- But but, but, but here's the problem. People say I want to be a director and that's not what they want. They want to be a famous director. They want to be a rich director. They want to be a fancy director. They're lying when they say they just want to be a director. Right. You can be more specific. You can have the thing you want. Interesting. I mean, (laughs) I feel like the specificity in what I'm looking for, or I think a lot of filmmakers and a lot of the filmmakers that we have on the show are looking for is just the being able to make film after film after film, you know, just like, so like you make one film, you, you, you get that done, it gets released, and then you you are able to raise the money or have the budget to make the next These film. are all very different fi- things than just making film after film. Liz, you make film after film. You do that excellently. Thank you. But I also, right, like I have some support. And I mean, yeah. I think what we all, and to re- I don't know, to att- attempt to interpret what Ulrich is saying, which is very clear, mm-hmm. I'm just not good at interpreting people. Um, is there a world where in any way, um, you could make money from independent features. And I don't, I, I agree. I think it's impossible. I don't know how to do it. Yeah. I, I, I'm not, maybe I'm not the person to ask. It doesn't mean that I'm right. In my experience, I have no idea how you do that. I feel like it's a, it's something that like Liz's whole program that she's doing. It's like, this is what she's trying to figure out with um, Naomi McDougal Jones is trying to figure out 
how uh, this could change, you know, and like how things could be different for indie filmmakers, you know? I think it starts with being honest. I think it does not help people to say that once you get your short film in Sundance, you're going to be a big famous director. I think it does not help people to not be honest about what the lifestyle looks like. It's not fair. Right. And it's really lonely for people. They feel like they're the only ones failing. No, everybody's failing. That was the other thing that other takeaway from the show that I've had is that we've asked every single person who's been on the show, like, or majority of people, do you feel like a success? No one feels like a success. No one feels like they've broken through. Everyone feels like they have something to prove. And so I think it's a head game too. I kind of do actually. <laughs> Yay! I kind of do. <laughs> it just blew you know out of speakers. Sorry. You know why? Because I'm finally making a living off of the thing that I wanted to make a living off of. That was my goal. That was my very specific goal. And I'm, I, and I'm luckily getting to do it off of projects that I get excited about. Now, the reason is, is because I say no to other things. We're going to call the show Living the Dream with Jen McGowan. <laughs> I think this conversation could go on forever, but Liz, do you have any final question before we get into our last five? Oh, I'll, I'll save it for the final five. Okay. All right. I'll go first. So Jen, what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Oh God. I don't even want to mention this. <laughs> I don't even want... All right. So it was a short film. I'm not even going to tell you the title. It was a short film that I made when I was a receptionist in New York City for a commercial production company. I made it in, I want to say 1998. Shot over two days. Shot on 16 millimeter. I don't even remember how I cut it, but I did. And uh, by the way, shot, created and produced on a receptionist salary. So I don't want to hear anybody say they can't get a movie made. And it's horrible. But actually, I'll tell you, I was really scarred because I showed it to my boss and she said it was sophomoric and I had to look up what that word was. (laughs) (laughs) Your your first film is sophomoric. That's so funny. (laughs) Um, But it helped me figure out what I wanted to do. So it was very important. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Ever received? Mm, What was the exact way they put it? No is neutral. If someone tells you no, they didn't change your life in any fashion. You're in the exact same position you were in before you spoke to them. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just going to like, if I ever make it big, I'm going to pay you and ask you to be my (laughs) life coach and just like get like, can I just like have a transactional relationship where I give you money and you just like share pearls of wisdom. (laughs) That's what Twitter's for. You can have it for free. (laughs) I want to frame that. That's, that's pretty amazing. Love that. It's a, it's a very big mindset change. It's powerful. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Yeah, I want to have a long career um, being able to pay my bills off of this and making stuff that I'm proud to put my name on. If you could go back in time, uh, what would be the piece of advice you would give yourself? That's hard. That's hard because the problem is my journey has determined what I'm doing right now. So even everything that was horrible and miserable and I cried over is why we're having this conversation now. I'm not big on looking back either. I just, I don't, it seems so pointless. Right. Cause all the things that happened bad or good led you to where you are right now. Basically. They don't matter. I can't do anything about them anymore. I like to focus but on you what could, I could. If you went back in time, Jen, you're missing. All right, the I know question. you're right. I undermined your question. I'm so sorry. I'm not behaving. Okay. I don't know. That's okay. Your answer. You know great. what I would say? Actually, no, actually, you know what I would say? I think I would have gotten to where I wanted to go sooner if I had 
trusted that I have something unique to say that people want to hear. You, when you're, when you're building your voice, which is, I don't know what the hell that is, but you have to run and believe that the ground is going to meet you. Right. And the best way to do that is to be as much the best version of yourself that you can be. It's the only way to guarantee that you're not copying something. Wow. Love it. Last question is making movies hard. Sure. (laughs) But it's fun. (laughs) Awesome. Um, Thank you for coming Best answer ever. (laughs) Do you want to plug anything, um, instruct people how to follow you who aren't already following you anything? Yeah, sure. So on Twitter, I'm uh, at I am Jen McGee. And I would love it if people would watch my movies, Kelly and Cal and Rust Creek. I think they're both on Netflix and, you know, Amazon and all the digital places. So please check it out and, you know, go make good shit, everybody. (laughs) Auric, what do you remember from the conversation with Jen? So, yeah, I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but there was a little part um, where Jen and I were talking, going back and forth about this whole idea of like, you know, success in filmmaking. And she was sitting this thing where it's like, oh, if you want to make a movie in your backyard with your friends, that's cool. And so in, in a way, it, it kind of sounded like she was throwing like almost the entire indie film community under the bus by saying that in a way, because it's like, that's what all indie filmmakers do in general. And that's obviously what she did when she first started with her features as well. Um, so it's like, you know, I don't know. I, I wanted to really have a deeper conversation about that, but we just didn't have time to go into it more. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I kind of felt like, yeah, I was thinking about this for days afterwards, like, well, you know, like, is that really a bad thing? Like, can you just have your life where you pay the bills however you have to? Like, maybe it's not through filmmaking, maybe it's not through video production or commercials or whatever. Maybe it's in a different in- industry. Maybe it is in the same industry. It doesn't matter. But like, if you're just doing that as your day thing and then you make films throughout your career as you go forward, like, is that really like not like achieving some sort of like status as a filmmaker or some sort of like career as like a director that has legitimacy or, or is that only just going to be like, Oh, I'm, you're not really a professional. You're just more like a person who makes films in your backyard with your friends. Like, was she you know? talking about legitimacy? I thought she was really talking about money. And from my perspective, it was like her saying like, you're not going to make money doing that and you're going to exhaust yourself. And here's this other option in television where you make tons of money and you get to be a storyteller. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. I, th- I kind of feel like the money and the legitimacy is sort of wrapped into one, you know, mm-hmm. in a way. And I mean, maybe she did not mean that. I mean, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but that was sort of how I took it, you know, um, <laughs> Like, it's like, if you want to be a serious, real filmmaker and actually get to the level of a professional, you know, like these are the things you have to do and you have to like put everything out on the line. Like you can't have a life. Like you have to sacrifice everything and everything that you have ever to this. Like, and that's the only way that you're going to be a real filmmaker is if you really like cut out everything from your life besides this one thing. And like, I'm not sure if that is the only way to be like a successful filmmaker. Maybe if you want to like be like directing Marvel movies, maybe that's what you have to do. Or if you want to be like, like a, like a full-time TV director, that's what you have to do. But I think to be like a legitimate professional filmmaker, I'm not necessarily sure that's the only way to do it. I think this 
system supports her answer though. And it's because I, I don't know, I, I'm actually pitching on things. Like I had a pitch today that just got moved to Thursday and I'm so disappointed. I'll wreck it. Can't even tell you. Um, but it's like, I'm actually pitching on things. I don't think any of these things are going to go, but I'm mentally preparing for if they do. Right. And like, all I can think about is I don't want to leave my son for 21 days. I don't want to not see him for all the pre-production leading up to it. I'm nervous about the, the sacrifices I'm going to make. And I think in order to keep up momentum of a career, you have to make these like sacrifices um, to not see family and friends quite often. So I actually do think the system supports our interpretation of being a working director is that you do have to sacrifice a lot of things. I mean, I know that you and I are trying to figure out ways. How can you have your cake and eat it too? But I, I'm like looking for an example, like who's an example of someone who by their own admission has like a, like a safe, healthy family life <laughs> and also is a working director. Right. Yeah. Like I can't think of anyone. <laughs> Marielle Heller uh, with her French hours. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to answer, but I mean, you know, I kind of think it's like up to each person individually to decide how to navigate that. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying you're not going to have to make sacrifices. Like, of course you have to make sacrifices, like just to make any movie, you have to make sacrifices. But I think there's difference between like, you know, like making sacrifices and um, devoting every aspect mm-hmm. of your life to something, Yeah. you know, like, I think like, you know, in order for filmmakers to, to have perspective or to be able to tell stories, I feel like you have to have other things in your life. Because if you don't have other things in your life, like, what are you going to talk about? Like, you're just going to talk about, you're only make movies about making movies, which obviously, I mean, to some extent is what I did with my first feature. But I I feel like, you know, like other influences, other things from the world coming into you through act like, you know, hobbies, uh, activities, friendships, family, whatever, like those things are important. Even, even work, you know, like work can be a big, um, you know, pool to, to, to source from for your content. So I, I don't know. That's, I just, I'm not saying she's wrong or anything. Like, obviously like to, to do things, you have to, you have to sacrifice a lot, but I'm just saying like, there, there, there isn't only one way to do anything and there isn't only one answer sure. to any solution. So I'm just, sure. I don't know. I want I was curious to hear what you thought of it. And it's, it's interesting well, that you're kind of coming down on the gen side of things. I am just because of my anxiety for the future. And my, like, I'm seeing like, I, again, I, I know you think I'm like, oh, she lives so, you know, negative to be humorous. Um, but I genuinely don't think projects get off the ground. Like this is not like me being sarcastic. Right. I am like basically attached to a future right now. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I don't think anything ever happens unless you have your claws in it and you're like fighting for its life for years. Mm-hmm. Um, or you get really, really lucky and somehow something gets, you know, pulled off the ground and um, you're just like hanging on for dear life. Um, so I'm just thinking like, yeah, I th- if if you want an actual career, where your name is referenced, where you have representation, where you're regularly working, where you have a paycheck. Yeah, I do think Jen is right. But I there has got to be a hybrid that you're talking about. I just don't, I don't see it in action. You know, maybe it is that kind of like, you know, Whit Stillman, who I think 
lives in Paris now, you know, did like an Amazon <laughs> show and then like did three features. I And he writes novels. Like maybe there's this other thing that we're not thinking of. You know, Dan Mervish, right? Dan Mervish with the six films and the Nelms brothers. But they just yeah, seem they're, like they're, they're all it. hustling all the time. But I think like that's, it's always going to be a hustle. I mean, t- just like referencing our conversation with Larry, you know, who's been doing it for a very long time. Yeah. It's like, it's always going to be a hustle. So I'm not necessarily saying that, oh, it's not going to be a hustle to get a movie. Of course, it's going to be a hustle. Like everything's going to be a, a lot of work and effort. But I'm just saying that you can have other things in your life besides this one thing, if you want, you know? Yeah, she's pretty like, intense. I'm, I think that's also what we're reacting to is her intensity. I love her intensity though. I mean, yeah. she's fantastic. And I think, you know, obviously like that person in a room, I can see why she would, you know, you know, get pitches and, you know, get jobs because she is so convincing, you know, yeah. and, and, and charming and strong at the same time. So it's like all those things like makes her like seem like the ideal choice for a director. Cause it's like, oh yeah, this, we don't have to worry about anything. Uh, right. Jen's got it covered. It's <laughs> amazing. I don't know. How do you derive that kind of confidence? I like, I, again, like it's the Amber Seeley, Jen McGowan school. I would take classes at that school. If they could just like rub yeah. off some of their personality, I would pay for that. Well, uh, hopefully, you know, this episode is like a little crash course in the Jen McGowan school. And then if you haven't heard the Amber Seeley episode, jump back to that one. That's a good one too. And then, gosh, what is her name? The woman who directed that film, um, Knives out something knives wait so are you talking about um she's from the east coast i think oh uh, i thought you were gonna talk about um the polish director that you love so much oh. um malgo um oh yeah she's great too yeah oh oh jennifer reader um jennifer knives, reader, yeah yeah knives something not clearly not knives yeah. out but knives and skin knives or something. something like that yeah knives and skin yeah jennifer reader and then i'll they throw malgo in there too like if, if they all came together and, and made a school for directors like i would be enrolled I got so much money yeah i know they would make a fortune. <laughs> well, there we go. That's our next business. That's how we can afford to be filmmakers is we'll form this um, ideal film school. That right. would be really cool, actually. That would be cool. Um, all right. So I think we should go to uh, Get Shorty. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. So this week we have a short from director DP Carl Richter called Mirasite. Carl's also a listener of the show, which is awesome. He, uh, you know, basically emailed uh, me or us this this email about like, oh yeah, how do you get on Get Shorty? How's it work? Like if you submit a film to Get Shorty, will you get rejected and never be allowed on Get Shorty again? And I was like, well, you know, we very rarely reject people. And I think we could also argue we've never rejected anyone. Um, We did. uh, I rejected someone. Well, you did. Yeah. Uh, And I was like, but I want to talk to you. Can I give you feedback about your film? And he never responded. Oh, wow. Did you share this one with me or did you? I did. did. It was a horror comedy and it had like potential, but it didn't matter. Mm. He didn't respond. It's fine. Whatever. My feelings are hurt, but it's fine. Well, how do you think he feels? I know. I was like, (laughs) why am I talking about me? That poor guy is such a dick to him. Um. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> going back to Carl. So Carl sent me a few movies and I watched, I don't know, I think I just watched this one and I was like, oh, this is great. I don't need to watch any more. Uh, let's do this. So uh, here is Carl to talk about his film, Mirror Sight. Hello, Liz and Ulrich and the Making Movies is Hard community. Um, I'm here with my film, Mirror Sight. The reason I made this film as a short was it was always meant to be a short. 
I had made a short in 2016 that checked a lot of boxes, had some money behind it. And at the end of that experience, I came away with it as if I'd missed something. Um, I truly didn't totally know what I was doing per se. Um, I had directed other things, but not narrative like that. And so it really opened my eyes to how much I didn't know. So instead of waiting for more funding and all that, I went ahead and made another short 2017, self-funded, much lower key, much smaller cast, and use it as an exercise in blocking and just more practice. But it wasn't my script. And so it still wasn't quite there for me as a director. So I made another short, Mirror Sight 2018, which I wrote and directed, um, and I shot. I also edited it. And that was sort of my first experience of like, oh, I can trust my own ideas. Great. So this story I made because a friend of mine had sort of a similar experience on that actual rooftop, but it was over like a two to three year span of being on these long distance calls and catching himself saying the same thing as we do sometimes. You know, we use similar words, you know, pet names for our uh, significant others. And it was a real like moment of like, oh, what am I doing? And it, it, kind of this emotional thing that he and I talked about. So I turned it into what I would call a subtle science fiction short film. Uh, the film was entirely self-funded. I did it for a very, very low cost. Um, if you're watching it, you'll see there's almost no lighting. I just planned it out via the direction of the sun during the day, because uh, it's all in location. And ultimately I couldn't really light anything up there anyway. Because of the challenge of filmmaking, I took on when I wrote it was that I needed to do these different time loops, but how to make each one unique. And the way that I did that was by um, adding more edits per loop. So when you watch the first loop, there's far, far few edits than the fifth loop, which eventually is jump cutting based on his emotional state. Before making the short, it was really meant to be an exercise in filmmaking and that was it. When I was done the short, I was very, very happy with it and it actually, it kind of turned out better than I thought. And so I submitted it to film festivals, which it went to several, uh, about 11 or so. Unfortunately, that was during the pandemic. And now that it's finished, it's only just starting to be out in the world. You're the first place it's going to show publicly um, after that fairly successful festival run. I'd like to submit it to a number of other platforms um, so it really can get seen and really can be used as a, as a beginning calling card. I don't want to say it's the end all and be all because it's not, but um, it's an opener. Would I do anything different with the story? No, I wouldn't. I did write a draft that was female led and I changed all the female characters to males. And I did do a table read with uh, women and men in the room and tried both versions and uh, and it sort of gauged the room, the actors there, and it didn't really seem like it needed to go in any one direction. So I stuck with the original. In an effort to work toward diversifying both cast and crew, it felt like it would be, it'd be far more beneficial to have a predominantly female cast. The short was written as a commentary on our digital connection. We are told all the time that we're more connected and more connected, more connected. Companies are selling that to us. and But I found that being on a device and those apps are sort of eroding our mental state. I'm not totally wrong, there's a documentary about it, but I've personally felt like being on these apps um, and just scrolling all the time is taking away from my actual connection with real people and quality time. And um, it's always that thing, people on their phones, they're sitting across each other at dinner and you're like, what is going on? Uh, and so I'm really mindful of that. And so the story speaks to that, is this guy who's dating these women um, over a period of time, and he's not really making a real connection. He thinks he is, because he's got these lovely things to say, and he's really feeling it through the phone, but it's still through the phone. And so it's not really of a quality that matters, not really. They are different women that he's dating, just that time has been collapsed between the relationships for this, you know, for this, it's a time loop, so there you go. 
<clears throat> and they are all different people. Um, they share similar tastes and sensibilities, but they each one are different. And it's that idea of thinking you're doing something different and thinking this is the one and thinking, but you're not, he's not really making that connection. So it's a fabrication of an experience that he's deluded himself into until he actually makes a deliberate choice to break it. And that's it. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the podcast. I'm a fairly new listener, um, but I've already learned a lot. Uh, as it turns out, I know nothing. <laughs> uh, and so I really encourage you guys to keep doing it. Uh, the interviews are great. Uh, the information you got is great. Um, keep it up. And thanks again. Uh, so Liz, what did you think about this film? I thought it was great. I really genuinely thought it was great. Mm. I don't think I understood it, but I honestly... It- <laughs> Didn't matter. It's like one of the situations where like, I'm cool not completely understanding this because it looked great. It sounded great. The performances were really good. It was an interesting enough concept that I could get like my toe wet. You know what I mean? Like I could kind of understand it somewhat, even if I didn't, I couldn't like write an essay on it. Um, I thought that the vocal performances from the actresses were really good. They sounded like real phone calls, which I never get to hear because I always um, am obsessed with phone calls in movies and they always feel really fake. Like that just drives me nuts. Um, And then I love that they had a post-credit sequence. Come on, Carl. That was cool of you. Post-credit sequence in a short. Well done. Um, Judging by your reaction, you may have different thoughts. I'm not sure if I watched the post-credit sequence. I should probably go check that out. But um. I liked the loop structure of it. I thought that was good. Um, I thought it was shot well and the performances are really solid, like you said, um, you know, but I was pretty confused to actually what was going on <laughs> in this short film. I didn't really like, I was like trying to figure it out. I was like, wait, so so it's called Mirror Sight and he's talking to these women, but they're different women, but it's the same kind of story each time. And it feels like the through line of the same character, but just played by different people and then he comes and he meets with someone at the end but it's like a different woman than the other women but maybe it's the same as one of them and I was like what is going on I don't did you think he was playing a bunch of women because that's like I mean playing I mean like hustling a bunch of women because that's kind of what I thought in the beginning yeah I wasn't sure I thought like maybe like there was a bunch of people like going into like the same website like a same dating website or something and that he was servicing all these different women through this site or something and that he was like just some sort of service and then but he maybe he wasn't aware of it and then he was like like maybe he was like some sort of AI like trapped into this loop of the system and he was trying to figure out what's going on it's weird it does not make a lot of sense to to be completely (laughs) frank but maybe it does and we just don't know because we haven't listened to carl explain what his intention is so i did listen to carl explain um (laughs) and he did did listen (laughs) and he did have um like a real like you know concrete story about what it was and so i guess it was supposed to be this idea of dating through social media and uh, dating through apps and stuff and that like each date is the same and that like you feel like you're having a connection with somebody through a phone but you're actually not having a real strong connection and that like you go through all these different relationships and they all feel like they follow the same thing and you're kind of like stuck in this loop of dating you know in these these through these apps and through the phone and then you know you like break out of that cycle and actually meet with somebody in person and then that's like what a real relationship is so the ending was supposed to be him breaking out of that cycle of just dating through the apps and not actually connecting with people and just like slight swiping and texting and then he comes out and he like you know has a real relationship 
So I didn't get that at all <laughs> from the I, movie. Maybe like 50%. I could see about 50% getting in, getting into my brain. Yeah. I think if like he wanted to really make it clear that these are multiple dates, like that shouldn't have been the same through line kind of conversation. Like it should have been like, maybe like, like felt like they were different, like starts to each date, I guess, or each relationship. But, um, but either way, it was really entertaining and I, I really yeah. enjoyed it. And I feel like for like one location, um, it's a really convincing, um, you know, convincing story and like really intriguing, you know, um, and loop movies are hard because we've seen a lot of loop movies mm-hmm. and um, they're not always so um, engaging. So good job, Carl, to do engaging. I'm like still like chewing on what you just told me. And it's like when I saw it, I was like, oh, there's something ominous at play here. But hearing that it's about online dating, I'm like, wow, online dating must be like a real serious issue for <laughs> Carl. <laughs> like, like, yeah. like the treatment of the online dating is um, in this metaphor is like drastic. Um, yeah. But I, I, love, I love that there's an intention and I love that there's enough to talk about here that I think there's a real substance to the film. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was more like a conspiracy or some sort of yeah. sci-fi thing going on, especially with that little effect that he does where he's like touches yes. the edge and it like shimmers. I was like, hmm, like what's he, is he in a computer system? Is he just a robot? Yeah. Like what is going on here? And like being um, able to see the women on that rooftop it's yeah. like, to me, I was like, that was really off-putting. That brought yeah. the, the darkness in for me for some reason. Because it's just a, such a stark landscape. Yeah. And they're just like there with nothing else other than an office chair. Like, I read that to be pretty, pretty morose, actually. <laughs> like, yeah. I didn't think of it as, I mean, but online dating is horrible. So I get it. Get it. Yeah, I thought I thought that the visualization of that was cool because I, yeah. I think in my mind, I never thought that they were actually on the rooftop over there, that there was just like sort of a, a visual symbolism for like where they were, the what they were trying to say with the film. Um, so I think that part of it worked because yeah. I think we both were on board because that's the same. That's that that part of the story, I think, is the same in his what we had in our minds and what he actually intended. So, yes. Um, so I think that worked. Yeah. But uh, cool. but yeah, good job, Carl. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, people let us know what you think of Carl's film. I want to know if we're, you know, you're with us or if you got it, you know, tell us, we'd love to know. <laughs> um, but Hey, you've got mail. You've got mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. This week, we're sharing YouTube comments from listeners slash watchers of the show. I realize that often we say listeners and we forget to say that people are watching the show um, on YouTube. Okay, so we had an episode with Dan Mervish recently and Nick Bell, um, hero, hero listener of ours slash watcher of ours said, holy crap, I burst out laughing at this one uh, so many times. This podcast had me smiling the whole way through. Um, and if Dan ever wants to make a career change, might I suggest stand-up comedy? Such a great episode. Thanks, Liz and Alric. So thanks, Nick Bell. Thank you for enjoying the episode. And yes, Dan Murphy is very funny. Dan's gonna love to hear that. He's gonna be like, okay, let's let's stop filmmaking for a minute. I'm gonna do stand-up. Um <laughs> so on our episode with Barbara Crampton, we had uh quite a few comments. First one from our good old buddy, old pal, Gary Kennedy, who says, really great selection of guests. The trailers for both features looked pretty incredible. 
Uh, Corone alone is pretty good for a first film. I'm curious how he controlled the two balls meeting at the doorway, doorway early on. Thanks to both of you for giving a platform for shorts from all levels of filmmakers and not just Vimeo staff pick stuff. Awesome. Glad that you like that, Gary. Um, Curtis M. Ratliff says on the same episode, I leave an iTunes review, but I've already done it. And Apple won't let me triple stamp a double stamp. Digging the show, <laughs> as always. I realize I might be in the minority, but I actually dug the Ulrich Liz segments more at the beginning of the episode rather than the end. <clears throat> but, that, but if that's all I have to complain about, I suppose life's pretty damn good. Oh, Curtis. <laughs> that's the first time anyone said that. So interesting <laughs> um, that that's the one. But, any, are, you know, are you all being silent? Are you all silently hating this new format? Let us know. We, 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 will, we will adjust if you hate it so much. Um, but it has to be more than one of you. Sorry, Curtis. Um, also, Nicole Demensis says, Corona, Corona, Corona alone, Corona alone was adorable. She just said it once. I said it three times. Uh, so, yes. Thanks for all the comments, everybody. Um, and we have a new patron. Brand new today, Bentley Heyman. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Um, I tried to get a question or comment or something out of Bentley. Bentley just says no question or comment. Just happy to contribute. I love the podcast. Keep up the great work. So Bentley, thank you so much. That is uh, means a lot to us. So if you wanted to reach out to us, there's many ways to do that, uh, including writing a YouTube comment like Eric Kennedy or Curtis Ratliff or Nicole. Um, you could do that on our YouTube page. You could support the show on Patreon like Bentley Heyman. Uh, you just go to www. You just go to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast and um, give whatever you can. Thank you in advance. All money goes to actually just putting the show together. We don't pocket anything. Uh, if you want to send a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com, I'll do that again. If you want to send a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com, or if you like the show and you can leave, I can't talk today. Um, so sorry. Uh, or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes or any of the places you could leave reviews for podcasts. Finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. And we have 211 subscribers. Yes. It's amazing. So many subscribers. <laughs> um, <laughs> although I, I was very happy that we had like 50 hits on Barbara Crampton in a week. That was pretty good. Yeah. People like that, that one. That's a good one. Um, but anyways, thanks for listening. And thanks to Jen McGowan for making this episode happen. Thank you, Jen. Uh, I can't wait to see what she does next. We kind of got a snippet of what she's working on. We can't say, but oh, it's very, very exciting. Uh, check our website at uh, makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to things we talked about in this episode. It has still not been updated. Um, this project I'm on ends in two weeks. That's when it'll probably happen because this has been like, I barely have time to do anything with this crazy job I'm on. Um, thanks to editor, hopefully me, uh, for doing the editing uh, and for Lucas Kolshoff for the art. And thanks everyone for listening and we'll talk to you guys next week. So we're here with Jen McGowan, uh, writer, director of Rust Creek. Is that right? Or just, just director? director. Oh, take two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, I, I, I'll just say your things and you say my, I don't know. Should I just go into the, hi. Just go. You've got mail. <laughs> so, uh.
Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.